everybody. This is episode 37 of Sparkle and Destroy podcast, and I am your host, Haley Crusher Kane, as always, coming to you live from the quarantine in California, um, the quarantine around the world. Hopefully, you guys are doing okay. Um, my stress has manifested in numerous ways. One way um, is buying a pack of salami and then eating an, an entire pack of salami in one night. Uh, just standing there by the sink while also eating just handfuls, hunks of bread, um, just just gripping the bread and just, you know, throwing it into my gaping maw. Um, another way is waking up in the middle of the night um, and checking the news. I've been very, very busy uh, working on creative projects. As you guys know, that's like my thing, my go-to, especially um, when times are scary. Um, working on demos and songs and podcasts and articles and um, freelance work, obviously my normal day job. And so at night, that's when uh, all the demons creep in and I think we're all going to die. So, you know, when I get up to pee at three in the morning, I have to check the news like three times, uh, refreshing it, refreshing it, refreshing it. So, um, you know, when you're in a podcast situation and you're rambling like I am right now, you don't have time to think about all the bad stuff that could happen. So I do appreciate this time that I have with you in your ear holes and the ability to think about somebody else for a change. Because when I record podcasts, I I, I think about you guys. I, I don't know what you're doing or who you are necessarily, um, but I imagine you are uh, living your lives and trying to get through it the best you can too. And I get to do that alongside you. And I think that's a small, uh, simple joy that I will uh, take to heart. So in case you're wondering, uh, Dr. Kane is out of work right now. Um, it's hard to uh, be inside people's houses remodeling their kitchens or bathrooms when there's a pandemic and there's people inside those kitchens and bathrooms. So um, we've been doing some creative stuff. <laughs> For instance, a friend of mine um, knew somebody who needed a gigantic photograph, this framed art photograph. Um, transported from Cayucas uh, down here in uh, central coast of California up to San Francisco Bay Area. And um, this painting is so big that they would have needed to rent a U-Haul. And so uh, because we have the big, tall, you know, uh, Dodge Promaster van, my friend thought of me and referred me to this guy. And and so we, we actually uh, went and picked up this painting. Uh, or this this photograph rather it, it was the size of the van it was crazy we had to take the bed out and our cabinets out but it was worth it for $500 to go drive up to San Francisco area and go drop it off in a wealthy neighborhood and uh, have the dogs get out and poop uh, we saw a lot of uh, Lululemon um, very kind of just uh, pissed off looking uh, middle-aged women kind of marching around in expensive yoga gear which I thought was kind of funny uh, not funny, but it's 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 weird. Like the, the everyone's doing the quarantine differently, right? In the Bay Area, in this neighborhood we were in, this wealthy neighborhood, uh, they were definitely uh, exercising. That was like how they dealt with their anxiety. It was like this, like it's like they were in the mall and they were doing like speed walking in the mall and they were kind of gruff and like not really talking or say or waving at each other. <laughs> um, and so yeah, we got a burrito, a really good Bay Area burrito, um, which was a risk. That was like the one thing we did. We got got out of the van, got a burrito, you know, wiped down our hands and sat in the back of the van, ate the burrito, um, and then we drove home the same day. So uh, those are these are the adventures that you can uh, 
look forward to during quarantine time, I guess. I feel like any little excuse to get out of the house, uh, we're totally into. However, we've been very safe and we have not been um, like, you know, going out to any sort of needless social gathering or anything like that. We haven't been um, really leaving the house for much unless we're walking the dogs or just um, filming some music videos. Uh, we've been doing a new video and um, we went out to the wildflowers out in Pozo one day. Um, just stuff like that. And I think people forget that you can do stuff like that. Mentally, we're very locked down and physically we are quite locked down. But I mean, you can go out in nature, you guys. It's fine. Like you can climb a tree. You can hug a tree. That's your business. Um, so anyways, this seemed like a good time to catch up with my good friend, Neil Breton, who has been threatening to come on the podcast for some time now. Uh, he is a fan of Haley and the Crushers, and I am a fan of Neil Breton's amazing artwork, especially his pool series, which he's been working on for the past few years. And so he had this great idea of having himself, <laughs> inviting himself on the podcast and um, interviewing me about each of the songs which I thought was a very cool thing and very sincere because he really does um, listen to the lyrics and he really he really has lots of art, you know, art and, you know, making art kind of questions. And I thought that might be useful and interesting to you guys. And especially during quarantine, we have all the time in the world. Why not um, allow me to talk about myself <laughs> and Dr. Kane for a little bit and the inspiration behind our new album, Vintage Millennial. So we're going to go through each of those songs today. Um, I met Neil Breton, I think in 2012, um, right when I was coming uh, back to San Luis Obispo, California from Los Angeles with my tail between my legs, trying to, um, grow as a person. Um, I had a zine called swap at the time and I would make him draw me all these little things for the zine, whether they were covers or, um, little doodles in the back of the zine that I kind of thought would be fun little posters for people to cut out. Um, and he was always game. I remember he always had this red pencil behind his ear and his and a notebook. And I always thought that it, it almost felt like a prop at the time when I met him. But then as I got to know him better, I realized, no, this dude is always drawing. Neil always be drawing. Um, he really needs that outlet. And it's obvious because he's very prolific in his work and he um, doesn't stop for much um, throughout, you know, struggles. Um, he still paints. And I think that's really freaking cool. Um, anyways, um, I always felt like Neil had sort of a, a gruff personality, not unlike Dr. Kane. Um, he has got a beard and he kind of always had this kind of gruff, you know, rough and kind of dark humor. But I always knew that his frown was just a smile turned upside down, which I know he's going to hate that I said that. <laughs> um, I lived in the establishment house or... He lived in the establishment, which I thought was just another world. It was called, um, for sure, it was called the East Ab, and it was an artist community in San Luis Obispo. And I just thought it must be some strange, I don't know, like weird commune, which I think it was. I think it was. I never actually, I think I went to like one Halloween party there, and it was it was actually pretty, uh, pretty weird. It was great. Um, and I lived in the Crossroads house, which was... Uh, a big old falling apart Victorian house um, filled with KCPR DJs, uh, local college DJs. Um, and there were two sides of the house and I lived on the Crossroads Junior side. I don't know why I was on the junior side, but I was. 
And um, we were both living in our respective chaotic worlds. Um, me in this sort of quasi intellectual weird art house um, that was really more of just a pigsty <laughs> and uh, kind of always smelled like curry. And Neil living in his, you know, kind of chaotic um, art community. And I think at the time, weirdly, we were both looking for, you know, an artist, like a community we were looking for, um, outlets to share our art. And so we kind of came together in this way where we collaborated. And this happened pretty early. Um, he had a um, art shop downtown Um where he sold art supplies and Dr. Kane um, had his comic book store, Dr. Kane's not too far away. Um, and I feel like that interestingly, they were both kind of in the same situation trying to like make a footprint downtown. So a lot of his desires are my, are mine, mine and Reed's desires. You know, we want to make an imprint on the place where we live. We want to share in a vibrant, I say that with quotes, art artist community. We want to, share our work with the world. Um, we don't want to compromise about that work. So we, we have a lot of things in common. Um, before I get into this interview, I wanted to share with you guys a really funny um, a collaboration that we did a couple years ago. We had uh, the, the best art show in the world, um, which we conducted out of an alleyway between Dr. Kane's Comics and a salon. And um, it was this collaborative uh, effort where... Um, essentially someone would walk up to the alleyway and um, we would taunt these people from behind a gate in the alleyway and ask if they wanted to see some art. And it was all very nefarious and uh, funny. And if they said they wanted to see some art, we would say, okay, do you want abstract uh, landscape? Or there was one other art portrait or something. And um, Neil and Reed created the art pieces, of course. And so um, they would say landscape or whatever. And so me and my friend Pickles would uh, hoist this piece of art onto a trash can that was in the alleyway because that's what the alleyway was for and, and, and unleash the art for like five seconds and let them see it. And then very quickly, um, you know, turn away. <laughs> and uh, this all culminated in um, wine tasting, of course, because this this whole this whole thing was sort of a parody of our uh, San Luis Obispo Art After Dark, which of course we have nothing against and we love. And and actually Neil is now uh, president, I, I believe he's president, yeah, president of Arts Obispo, who who puts on Art After Dark, which is like a you know one of those community events where everybody goes around downtown and for one night and looks at art and at different you know places and drinks too much wine. Um, now the wine has been discontinued from these events in our area. But at the time, we thought it would be funny to kind of have this whole thing culminate in a wine tasting where we said, do you want red or white? And then depending on what the, the patron said, we would take white or red grape juice and put it in a, a cup and stick a straw in there and force the straw through this little gate. And they would – it was funny because most people would actually drink from the straw, which – I don't know if I would have done that, but I mean, people were just like, mm, and people thought it was wine, which was actually quite funny. Um, so that, that gives you an example of our weird collabs. Of course, we have our summer crush events that we've been doing. We've done four of them so far <clears throat> where um, Neil and 
with the help of Dr. Kane, um, sometimes too much help from Dr. Kane, um, creates a living artscape for Haley and the Crushers to play in front of. And um, those events la- basically ended two times with the cops being called, even though we were playing very mild rock and roll in the daytime at an all ages event at a coffee shop. <laughs> um, but the last one we did that the spring crush, I'm really glad we got to do it before this whole pandemic thing happened where we got to set up this entire um, Neil Breton slash Dr. Kane insane fantasy in uh, the slow library as part of art, Af- art after dark. Um, funnily enough, and we got to play and rock out in a library and there were kids with balloons everywhere. And, um, Neil's son, um, sad Batman was there and, um, his wife, Catherine, and we all got to kind of have this shared weird experience. So that's enough about Neil. I just kind of felt like you should have some back backstory on, uh, why and how Neil and I became friends. Um, especially now that the floodgates have been opened and all the dudes are just going to pour into the show. Just kidding. Um, Honestly, I never felt like I was going to have a show where I excluded men. It was never like that. It was more like I wanted to hear the voices that I wasn't hearing um, in podcasts. And a lot of the voices I was hearing was like Mark Marin talking to some guy about uh, Steely Dan or something. And I love Mark Marin, but um, I was just trying to get the voices that I weren't hearing. Weren't hearing? Get those voices that I weren't hearing. I weren't hearing. Um... So yeah, so I think it's kind of cool that now I'm expanding that a little bit more. And I mean, someone like Neil is a unicorn, honestly, because he continues to have a day job, continues to support his family, and continues to have a very, very um, rich artist's life and is continually producing art. And I am a huge fan of his work as well. So this is just like a fun little conversation between two Dorcases. Um, so I guess I'll just uh, leave it at that. Uh, and here is Neil Crusher Kane. Hello. Great. Great. Glad to be on your podcast. Wait a minute. This is your podcast. It's good to be here, Neil. <laughs> Thanks for coming by. <laughs> so are we doing, are we seriously doing you interviewing me or are, are were you being like half joking? Welcome to the Sparkle Butts podcast. Ooh. I'm your temporary host, Neil Crusher Kane. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's really good all right <clears throat> so um are we doing it this way well how you gotta give me some yeah. things okay. all right yeah no uh, here's what i wanted to set up i wanted to see how much editing you wanted to do with this how, how much how much time you wanted to spend on your podcast here because i think what i want to do is go almost song by song and ask you a little bit about each song yeah and maybe what you could do is intersperse that with some some sweet cuts of the of the record. In wow, there. you're like my marketing person. Thank you. I feel like I haven't done anything like this for the album, so that would be cool. yeah. I think it deserves its due. Thanks. Um, in a lot of ways, I think we could talk a little bit about each each song, and I want to talk about other like 
Yeah, that's great. Like All forced, that. sort of uh, like larger, like setback scope yeah. stuff, like yeah. your process and yeah. things like that. Oh my God, process. You're such an artist. Um, yes, I love this. And I have one question for you that I thought of like weeks ago. And I wrote okay. it down. So I don't let me forget. I have one question I really wanted to ask you. So I don't. Okay, I don't. This isn't really about me. It's really about. But me. I have a question that I want to ask you about. It, ha, it has okay. to be me too. Okay, cool. So um, yeah, and I I edit everything all the time. So I mean, I it's not like an issue of work. I mean, I edit everything. So okay. I, every, I edit everything. Okay, cool. Um, so, yeah, Neil, you're on Sparkle and Destroy podcast. You basically have been harassing me for several months now about having a discussion about the new record and that came out uh, in late January, Vintage Millennial. And so here we are. Here we are. I am such a large fan of your music and your band, so it's an immense pleasure to be here. <laughs> Likewise. <laughs> Um, I honestly never thought I would make it here. <laughs> You're at the pinnacle so, of your success. <laughs> you must really be bored, is what I'm thinking. <laughs> You've reached the, welcome to the bottom of the barrel. Yeah, a barrel of monkeys. Well, I always love talking to you, so this is fun. Truly a pleasure. Um, so let's just, I want to get right in it. Yeah. Like I said, I wanted to go maybe song by song yeah, for the new record. Um... Put a Little Action In Ya is the first song on the record. Um, I think if we give a blow-by-blow blow here, maybe it'll be fun. Uh, who wrote this one? Um, Reed Are these collaborative efforts? Maybe yes. that's a better question. Yeah, so Reed wrote um, the little the intro kind of riff. It's like, um, do, do. Do 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 do. Obviously, that's Reed because it's like a bass bass line right there. So he had written yeah. just that riff, and it was on a voice memo because we just write little riffs and we put them on our phones, and then we just like text them to each other. And one night, Reed was at soccer because he plays soccer on Thursdays with his over thirty five adult old man league. Um, and it's really soccer dads. Soccer I would dads. Prefer you to call it. It's pretty cute. It's pretty cute. But I was sitting alone. I'm like, okay, I have the whole house to myself. I'm going to create a song around this one thing, which is is what happens a lot of time. One of us will come up with a, a sliver of an idea, and then the other person will like completely like take it a totally different direction. So I took that, and I thought about – I guess I've been married like six years. We've been married six years, and I the song is kind of about like um, falling back in love and – remembering to have fun and like enjoying the time you have together while you have it. So it's a very simple notion, but one of those things I think couples tend to forget sometimes, especially, I mean, people think, Oh, you're on the tour together and you're doing all these fun things. And touring is so fun, but it is like dirty and it's somewhat boring sometimes. And it's like tedious sometimes. And you get really, really like in people's lives in your spouse's life or whatever, like your partner's life. And you're just like, Oh man, like I, I'm so close. I can't even see you anymore. So that's what the song is about. Like, let's get back to like feeling like fun and just like having a, you know, like it's kind of, it's kind of a sexy song, you know, but it's supposed to be fun. And you know, so that's kind of how that all happened. But I, I kind of created the whole like mood and the energy and the lyrics of the song. Um, and Reed just kind of created that first little riff part. So, if I'm listening to the entire discography of this band in particular, 
Is it a chronicle of your relationship with with Reed? Is this um is this band about you? Is it <laughs> I guess that's that's probably where I want to stop no, that question. No, I mean right no, there. I mean no, because we've been playing music together since 2011. So we've been writing music together for a really long time, and um, this band was actually my independence because I wanted to start this all girl band, and then the two girls I started the band with it was called the Gal Fridays. They like like ran off with each other and left me alone, and I was like, I want a girl band. I don't want a, a guy in this band. And Reed just kept being like, I'll play bass. And I was like, no, I don't want you to be in my band. I'd already been in Magazine Dirty and Red Eye Junction with him. So I was like, no, no, and he'd never played bass before. So I was like, no. And then eventually he's like, no, like, I will be in your band. I'm not going to be, it's not going to be about me. And I was like, okay. Because I wanted it to be something I could put my name on and, like, force myself to really, like, dig deeper and, like, be more of a songwriter than I was in previous bands. So do you it's feel, really, do you feel like this kind of journey, I would say. It's it's very Haley centric, obviously. But yeah, of course, like love songs and all those things come up and when you're married to your bandmate, there's certainly a through line of like our relationship throughout the trajectory of the band from two thousand sixteen or fifteen to now. I mean, yeah. Yes and no. Like the, you feel like you've grown up lyrically 
Um, yes. You feel like you, you approach, do you approach the way you write a song right now differently than the way you approached it before? Um, sorry, my dog was like <laughs> at the door. Um, like you mean from like when I was younger or like since the band started? Um, probably since the band started. If we're trying to just keep this encapsulated to yeah. this one specific notion, yeah. this one specific theme here. Um, the one biggest change with lyrics I feel like I've had is that I'm less precious about lyrics. Um, the way that Reed is with his lyrics is very, he'll write a song out and have like 10 different versions of what those lyrics could be. Um, and I always hated that about how he wrote. I always thought it was like, I'm like, oh, that's just so, you know, not, you know, the artist's way. You know, I sit down and write a song and like all my lyrics are meant to be there and they're from my heart. And like, I've become a lot less precious and I've become more like, um, more adult about being like, okay, well, these are five ways this lyric, this, these lyrics could go. What's the best way to serve the song? And to like kind of put my ego in the backseat a little bit and be like, no, like maybe this could be improved and maybe doing more drafts. So to answer your question, yes, I've become a lot more, um, I guess, I don't know, like, uh, <laughs> disciplined, <laughs> uh, which is a word I hate, but, um, I've become more disciplined in lyrics, I'd say, but I, I'd love to know what you think. I mean, you've been following the band the whole time and been, you know, a friend, a huge friend and, a uh, um, uh, what's it called? Collaborator. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, I'm like losing my words today. Sorry. <laughs> That's okay. That, that should be really good for a podcast. Um, yeah, it's great. I feel like um, you have definitely honed your skill as you become more entrenched in the work. At least, uh, um, at least for me, like if I was painting all the time, um, the paintings would get better. And I think that if you're writing music all the time or writing music more, then you're going to be able to do those things that you're doing right now, which is edit, um, yes. which is um, be more selective or be more patient. I think that's one of the biggest things as an artist to learn that you don't know. I don't know if you could ever teach that to any artist is just to be patient. And I think that maybe you've been more patient what do you mean? Because, like, can you can you go into like more patient and what like what context? I'm really I'm interested about this. Well, as you said, you were very you were you were very strict about what the song was going to be about. Um, so you basically put yourself in a box in a lot of ways. Um, and this was the thing, and that's it. And maybe that those songs weren't allowed to grow the way that they are allowed to grow now, which exactly. means that you're giving yourself the time to kind of pick it apart and kind of make it work the way you feel um, that does it the most justice. Yes. And I think that's a piece of the, that's a piece of the songwriting pie or art or just in general, like the artistic pie. Yeah. Artistic needs pie. To be added. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And do I, but do I think that you guys write better songs now? Honestly, no. I think that the entire catalog, there are some absolute gems that blow my mind in a lot of ways where I, I hear some of those songs, like even like Jaywalking, something like that, something like that song is, it's a really amazing song. It tells a story um, and 
I think that the Go-Go's could have written it. Or I think that, like, and I don't mean that in, like, that's in a way really that nice, you're, you're aping them or you're copying yeah. them. No, but no, I think I that that song that's is fine. so good that you could hear on the radio. That's so nice. That's, that was, that's the second song I wrote for this band, this project. And I didn't have a band yet, so I really appreciate that. I really yeah. do. Thanks. Well, there you go. Um, <laughs> let's move on. <laughs> I don't want to get too stuck. Um, Kiss Me So I Can seems to be... Um, very similar, I guess, maybe in theme, thematically, yeah. um, it feels like spending a lot of time with one person <clears throat> and the politics involved in that, um, yeah. can, can maybe, uh, be difficult. And I think maybe you could maybe speak to that about this song. Maybe yeah. you can tell me a little bit more about this. Again, I feel like when you become collaborators with your partner, whoever that may be, romantic or otherwise, or friend even, um, I have a lot of friendships where we do creative work together and you're definitely one of them. Like how many times we've we done a project together, but we don't, we don't always go out and have dinner. These things are both valuable and important, but when you become a bandmate more than a partner romantically, that is a scary place to be, especially when both of us, Reed and I both really, really want to pursue music and to pursue, we want to take it as far as we can go. We, for us, it's fun. So all these like goals that we have in terms of touring and writing and producing music are really wonderful. We egg each other on, but there are times when you look around and you're like, okay, we've created this awesome band, but like, what about just our own like intimacy, like just being with each other without having this other project in the way in a, in a sense. So that's kind of what kiss me. So I can is about, it's like our dream when we first met was like getting in the van and like, I, I've told the story a million times where I wanted to go on tour before I was 25. And I think I was like 23 or four. And he was like, well, do you want a wedding ring or do you want to go on tour? And I was like, I want to go on tour. And so he took me on tour with Red Eye Junction and I got to sing and we went all over Oregon and uh, up to Washington a little bit. And it was our first tour together. And it was this beautiful thing where we got to, we got to meld our, you know, our romantic relationship with our, you know, passion for music. So that was great. It started off like that. But as the years went by and the, we did more and more touring and more and more projects, I think we realized, okay, like we need to have boundaries around both of these things because um, booking can, alone can drive you crazy. As you know, like trying to get into galleries can drive you crazy. If you're trying to get into galleries and you're doing all that minutia and then your partner's also like invested in that, it's like you don't have a, a respite from it. So No, um, yeah, you're right. Uh, it's, but it's actually still easier to get into a gallery than it is to book a show. Yeah. It's Coming from experience of that. Yeah, too. and you would know that. I mean, you have a history yeah, of punk. And, and it's music. why I'm not in bands anymore. So, so that song was really came from the heart, and it was something we wrote together again. Um, um, we wrote it musically together, and I wrote we wrote a lot of lyrics together and this is one of the first songs we've ever written like literally in real time together. Cause like I said before, a lot of times it's like we're leaving little clues for each other. Like, Oh, here's a riff here. I'm going to text this to you. Or I'll say, I have this great idea for a song. I'm going to write it in our, we have a shared notebook too. Well, it's my yeah. notebook, but we have a certain page that's shared and I'll have song ideas. This one was like, we sat down and wrote it together. And like when we were done, we were like both like kind of teary eyed, like, I love you, baby. I love you so much. It's like so gross. <laughs> <laughs> So, that is gross. This time, can't seem to find it. Rushing here and there, never anywhere. Oh, spaces get wider between me and you. Baby, what can we do? The sun's working hard. 
comes through. People keep saying that that song has a little, it's a little different than the other Crusher stuff. And I say, yeah, we're both being vulnerable at the same time. And we're both like writing this at the same time for each other. And I think that that does show through like that kind of emotion, you know? Yeah. I, I feel like it's a very revealing song. So it gets to a point. Um, yeah, probably, probably become somewhat uncomfortable. So I have a question about well, for you. That kind, about, that, about that kind of writing in general. Um, so writing from, there's a, there's obviously maybe there's two different schools here. You're writing from experience, your life experience, but then um, moving on to like Poison Box where I feel like that is like a creative endeavor. Yeah. Um, are, are those two, are those two things different to you or when you, when you make a song, it's always going to be about something that you've experienced personally, or are you trying to be imaginative or creative in a way that I feel like Poison Box, mm. um, Poison yeah. Box feels like a, yeah. could, it could be a comic book. In my <laughs> I think you probably have the same experience here where there's two wells. Like you can go from, you can, well, you can, you can go to a place of just pure play in your art. I'm assuming with painting, it's the same thing. Like, Sure, if I like to have fun, you probably, I would, yeah. I've seen you but, be like, that's a fun little color. And you're like, I like yeah, that perky little color. Right. That's exactly the same thing with songwriting, because you can come from that place of like, that's a fucking cool idea. It's funny, or it's a, like, for Poison Box, I was in Berlin at the time, and I was just, I, I love the the way that you can see the ruins of like, the Soviet, um, you know, architecture still there and like all the remnants of, of the Cold War and, and the wall, the Berlin Wall and all that stuff. It's just interesting as an American, you know, everything we have is like stuccoed and like new. So, and I'm not in love with Europe by any means, but um, something about the brutalism of like the, the architecture and the the fact that all these artists and punk rockers and people are living in Berlin and East Berlin, West Berlin, all over Berlin, but um like living in a really like out out there way while they're kind of walking around in like you know form like places where there were formerly like tanks rolling down the street and like that's why like in Fred Friedrichstein the streets are super wide because like that's where the tanks would roll by and there's like all these scary like um you know statues of like like communist farmers that are you know they, they look really stoic and scary and, and um so from your imagination can run wild and you can play and like I get in modes where I'm like, ooh, I want to play. Like, I want to play. This is fun. And um, not that that history is fun by any means, but, you know, you kind of, like, have an idea and you just run with it, like a Frisbee, like a dog with a Frisbee. Camera one, camera two, oxygen, the high ratio got passing. Run the ball, turn the key, eat the memo, ooh, ooh.
there's the other side of art, which is a different well, which is I'm dealing with stuff and the only way I can process it is if I write something about it. It's yeah. not like I want to reveal stuff about my life. It's just that's how I've always dealt with my emotions, as you can probably also understand. So it's like we play from these two different wells, and I think what our band is doing now more than ever is like doing both. So not just fun and playful, but like also the deeper side of things. So I think we're kind of like, at least for me, I'm learning to like do both and not be scared. Like I can be fun but still be taken seriously, and I can be introspective and like kind of be um, – a memoirist in some ways and take from my own personal vulnerabilities and emotions and still be fun. I used to kind of feel more like, um, Oh my God, my dog. Um, I used to kind of feel more like, uh, you had to choose one or the other. And I don't think that you have to, cause we're all complicated, right? I mean, your art is a great example of that. Like you, you do pool scenes right now, but that's not just about fun and sun. Like there's definitely undertones of all sorts of emotions in, in your current work. Yeah. Well, yeah, I try not to touch too much on on it, and I don't really want to talk about my work, so. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, I'm just saying, for anyone that's listening, no matter what the medium is, I mean, I think... No, I, I, think that's a sh- I think it's definitely a sign of you realizing that the, the... I don't know where those rules come from. Maybe they come from just, like, listening to things. Like, that's the double-edged sword about of being... Um, a creative because you're 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 drawing in from inspiration like for instance like the Ramones yeah have this specific way and it a lot of times your influence or something that you're inspired by can also teach you a lesson which is good but can also teach you uh, a wrong lesson if you've misinterpreted it right and like maybe this is this is a way like you said like you realize that you could have both kind of um, you can have this outlet that has emotional um, acuity to it. It has, you know, an emotional credit. But then you can also have like a creative side where you can be imaginative and play in space. Yeah, and I think just to your point about the Ramones, if you look at Dee Dee Ramone, like once I started getting more and more into the like the behind the scenes of the Ramones, Dee Dee was tortured. He was a tortured soul. He was really screwed up. He wrote most of the songs, and he grew up uh, part of the, his childhood in Germany after World War II, and he was really royally screwed up by his family upbringing. And it's interesting when you go back and look at some of the Ramones' lyrics, as I, as I totally have, and you, you realize, yeah, these are upbeat and fun songs, but some of these lyrics are, like, completely depraved. <laughs> and uh, you kind of realize that every artist you think, you know, you put in a pedestal, like, oh, Picasso is such a badass. Like, he was, you know, he was freaking crazy and the most emo guy in the world. Like, he had all sorts of layers to what who he was. Um, yeah. And you kind of, I, I think the, what I like about autobiographies and I've been getting so much more into them is they give you permission to be messy too. Because when you see that picture, Marilyn Monroe, you don't see Norma Jean and you don't see what that transformation was and the sadness. You don't see any of that, but it's all there and it's coming through in her photos. Like she's so beautiful and gorgeous because she's so fragile, you know? And I realized right. that every artist has that. And it's like anyone that's trying to pose too hard in one way, Either they're too poetic or they're too, you know, punk or whatever. It's like, it's all just you're scared of who you are. And, like, you're scared people are going to reject you for who you are. And it's like, I have no interest in that anymore. Uh, when I was a teenager, sure, I was like, I'm punk and I'm cool and, like, nothing can touch me. And now I'm okay admitting, like, I'm a human being and I get sad and whatever. I get emo too. 
Yeah, I think the, that's probably the biggest, one of the biggest things about growing up is realizing that everybody has the same kind of feelings. And that doesn't necessarily not make you special, but it just makes you not alone. It's good, right? Yeah, I think so too. Aww. Anyway, let's move on to something a little bit more lighthearted. I think it's funny, um, you have If You Want to Dance on here. So... That's a song from Gidget's Revenge? Yes, the EP. Yeah. So what did you hate about the original song that you had to remake this song? Everything, Neil. No. Everything. No. Here's the thing. I think both versions um, both versions are, are good. There's a really snotty punk version. The, the Gidget's Revenge version is very snotty kind of. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's got it's got that kind of like punky bite sort of thing, and this one seems a little more sweet. Yeah, you want to speak to the? I mean, do you want to tell me why you guys uh, decided to uh, remake the song? Well, so we ever since we started this band, we've done this cycle of like, okay, we write a record, we we work on writing a record, then we do a record, then we promote it, then we then we basically do a bunch of shows, and we were really just coming off of cool lame when we started the vintage millennial and we didn't have all the material in the world. So not to say that we're scraping the bottom of the barrel, but we weren't throwing things out that were decent. Uh, I think it's a decent song. And I know that live, it would get a lot of uh, reception and people would really like it live. So that's kind of why we kept it around because we felt that it was one of those songs that there's songs that sometimes we don't like that much, but the audience does. And so we were like, you know, I think we could repackage this. Is this this your smells like teen spirit? (laughs) Well, I'm sure as a painter, there's certain things or themes or even just specific paintings where you're like, I know someone's going to like this and I know there's a market for it. I hate to say it like that, but we repackaged it knowing it's a fun, upbeat song with a chorus that you can sing along to. We know the audience loves it. So like, I think another thing about growing up as an artist is saying it's not about always about my feelings. Sometimes I'll be like, okay, people like the song Bad Girls. I didn't write that song, but it doesn't make my ego like... It doesn't make me upset. Like, I'm like, great. Like, let's play that all the time because people like it. So we really just left it around because people like the song. We don't hate the song, but, I mean, it is one of those things that I wrote, like, in an afternoon, sitting in my backyard, actually, um, just trying to emulate, like, pop, like 90s pop punk, and that's what I was doing. And, like, there's really no, like, emotion behind it. <laughs> that's but really funny that you think that that's, uh, that that's a 90s pop punk it doesn't. Well, that, it doesn't read like that to me. It reads more like. Well, like with the a, like. If you wanna dance, we'll dance. You know, like just kind of like. Yeah, so. I guess here's the thing. If if the if the chords were different and somebody else was singing it, I can see it being a Blink One Eighty Two song. Yes. Sure. So. But. But. I don't get that. I get sh- maybe like Shannon Shannon and the Clams or something like that. Really, for that song. Yes, because of the way you sing it and the way you guys play it. Okay. Wow, I tried to be really quiet back here in the Airbnb, and then someone's, like, doing their lawn. Oh, my goodness. I can't hear it, so it doesn't matter. Um, That's funny you say that, because I love Shannon and the Clams, and we've played with them with another band and and all that stuff, and I think they're great. I think there's certain more 50s-sounding tunes that I do that might be more in that realm and I feel like the more pop punky stuff I'm always confused why anyone would um put us in the category with them because I'm like it's like you said it's like a Blink-182 song but I can't sing it that way and therefore it becomes something else 
<laughs> but I have no a problem with it at all. I mean, these references are all things that uh, come into your brain and, and go out, and I and I adore them. So, sure. I uh, guess you know the thing is to me, I guess why it's fifties is because if you if you want to dance, just seems like such a wholesome kind of yeah uh, activity, and you're never you're not really talking about when you go to you don't really go to a dance, <laughs> and I mean, you know, you go to a club, right? Clearly. You go clubbing, that's different than going to a dance. If you want to dance, we'll dance. If you want to go, we'll go. If you're looking for a little romance, I will take you to the show. If you want to stand by me, I will hold you oh so close. If you don't want to talk no more, you know a place where we can go. like be deep or whatever but like if you want to dance could also be like if you want to live your life <laughs> okay i just took it at face value no um, it is face value I wouldn't, it is. I wouldn't listen either way because i don't like to dance and i don't want to live my life and you don't take your your shirt off at the pool never never take your shirt off at the pool that's gonna be a song i need to write that down please don't so we move from covering your own songs to covering uh, Water on Glass, yes. which is by... Kim Wilde. Kim Wilde, that's the one. Are you a fan of her? Um, honestly, I, she kind of must flew under the radar. As much as I have an absolute uh, undying love for 80s music, there is, there's always something new that I could learn, and this is one of those things where... The name sounds familiar enough, but the song right. um, the song is great. And I think I listened to, the minute I got these tracks, so you gave me the raw recordings when it, right before you even put it out, um, I went and looked up the, the original version. And oh, I think that you, you do such a great job. I would almost venture to say hot take 
you do it better. Yes! Well, well, I appreciate that yeah. because I actually didn't know Kim Wilde that much either. I just knew Kids in America. You know that song? We're the kids yeah. in America. Yeah, I know. Um, Stop singing it. <laughs> I want you to get sued. Um, um, and I know the Muffs, uh, Kim Shattuck does a cover of that. Um, I didn't know much about her either. And, um, you didn't know about the Muffs? No. Um, oh, sorry. Um, well, you only know like four bands. I forgot. Yeah. I only know four bands. Ramon, Screeching Weasel, <laughs> <laughs> the Go-Go's. Yep. And, and Blink-182 apparently. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I, I I wasn't aware of uh, Kim Wilde. I wasn't aware of Kim Wilde that much. I knew that song, Kids in America, but that's it. And um, where did it even come from? I don't even know. I fell down a rabbit hole on the internet one day, and I was just like, oh, I think I was just looking at 80s music on, like, the internet, like, on YouTube. Um, I was looking at old Go-Go stuff and old Madonna stuff, and, like, you know how YouTube just suggests crap? And it was like, Kim Wilde. And, um... Then I, I realized, wow, she's, like, a real badass and has, like, a really cool new wave kind of style to her and how she sang and, like, her songs are really weird. And she wrote them with her brother, Bobby, who was a child star in the 60s and did psychedelic weird rock and roll in the 60s. And okay. I got, like, in this weird rabbit hole. And that's when I went into all of her catalog and I noticed that there were a couple songs that were, like, really cool B-sides that were only famous in the U.K., and me being an enterprising person, I was like, well, these would be great Crusher songs and, like, no one knows them. So if I did, like, Water on Glass or Checkered Love, like, who would know that in the U.S.? And so kind of, like, I was like, hmm, that would be kind of fun, like, not to say that I wrote it, but just it would introduce a new audience to this really rad song. And if uh, people want to look that up on YouTube, there's actually a really funny, um, I don't know if you saw the video, it's like they're on top of the pops or something playing that Water on Glass. Did you see that? No. Okay, well, um... But this is something, obviously, like, we, I should... Like, people who hear this song should yeah, go and check those it's, things it's out. Like, and I think just, that's so probably one of the most important things that you can do as a band, really, is to turn yes. people on to other bands.
other music that other influences to new sounds. We're not, and we're like, we're not going to do another Go-Go song. We're not going to, like, we're not going right. to do another Ramon song. Like, what's what's something that we could kind of co, co-adopt a little bit? And so that's how that happened. And, of course, our friend Scotty Beerwolf uh, was doing um, some um, organ on this on these different songs, some Farfisa organ. We wanted him to do that song as well, but the organ solo, as you know, is really intense. So we love Scott, but he was like, dude, I can't do this, because it's a long, weird solo, as you know. And right. so we had to get a guy out of Nashville, I think it was Nashville or Vegas, uh, a dude to like do it remotely. We paid him, and he sent us the, he ended up sending us the uh, organ part, because we couldn't get anyone locally to handle it. Right. And when we recorded okay. the song, I argued with Reed a lot when we recorded it because I was like, okay, this part of the song is just going to be drums because we're going to add an organ in there. And he's like, as we were recording the song, he's like, that's a really long organ solo. And it's really kind of scary when you're recording. And it's literally just drums at that point. And um, he's like, that, th- this can't be right. This is going to be really weird. And I'm like, no, we're going to find someone that's going to fill that space. It's going to sound really cool. It's going to have that whole thing. And, you know, we had a couple misses, but we ended up making it happen. And uh, I think it's I think it's a weird kind of um, break in the album where you're like, whoa, an organ solo. What What is happening? You know, <laughs> that's what we wanted. When I when I spoke to Reed, I think what when I've had conversations with Reed about your band, yeah, and about your songs, um, what has been interesting is that he has this idea or this concept, and it's kind of a long con in a way, where you guys have have matured, and he, I think this is part of his vision is that you guys started off maybe being um, a little a little saccharine, a little sweet, yeah. which is nice. It's not like those songs are bad, because they're not. They're absolute, like, they're fantastic gems in, in all of your records. Oh, yeah. Um, but it's really interesting to see how he, he kind of thought about... Um, the way that you guys are writing songs as kind of like a way where you're kind of slowly becoming um, a very comp- it's complicated in a way, but it's it's very like there's a, a lot of different layers. It's a robust sort of yeah. sound. You're not just relying on bass, drums, guitar, vocals. No, because we always feel like um, you know. A live live music is different than recorded music. It's always different. And anyone that's striving to be exactly how they are live is missing the point. I mean, our point as recording artists is to record something that is special. And like you said, it, it has all the bells and whistles that really serve the song without going overboard. But we're never going to have a keyboardist on our tours. Might as well, you know, utilize that and have chimes and bongos and all sorts of crazy extra tambourine and stuff when you can do it. Right. Um, because that's the point, right? We want this to last after we're dead. So um, anyone that... I think sometimes pe- punk bands especially are like, well, we're just a punk band. We're a three-piece. And they're very like... Even like Green Day. I always bring up Green Day every episode of this podcast. But Why? they're a three-piece okay, punk stop band. stop now. Stop, stop bringing up. But they're a three-piece punk band that brought in a bunch of... Like in the 90s, uh, late 90s, early 2000s, brought in a bunch of other like instruments. And that's... <laughs> They're known for being a, a punk, for just, you know, Literally almost every other band did the same thing. I'm going to edit this out. I'm going to edit this out. 
Fine. Fine. You want to edit out our arguments? It's I'm going to edit out just the green. You can talk like, about, bring you can green talk about Offspring and the Vandals and No Effects and Bad Religion and all of those fucking bands brought in extra musicians to do stuff. Yeah, and just extra fun. Like, add fun to it. But that's, a, that's not even sure. an important question because nobody's mad about that. It's fine. It just, it's fine. Right. Okay, so why don't we talk about the, the process of recording when you're on the road versus like maybe being static. Um, because I think that's kind of an important thing. What, what you were talking about here was the fact that you recorded, you recorded water on glass, but you didn't know a soul that could possibly handle that, that organ thing. So you kind of had to like import it. Yeah, that's right. And well, we recorded, so the last two albums were recorded in Oakland at yeah. house of faith in this studio that is very weird. And, um, somewhat sketchy when you first walk in you think you're going to get murdered um but now it's it's home it's wonderful um the question being how do we record i mean we don't we don't really record here in slow you mean in, in california versus on the road because we just recorded well, in st louis i know you did additional recording at avalon right which is here yeah did barely. you did you make that do you make that did, was just did, glockenspiel that was just glockenspiel yeah, it was just glockenspiel and adding some Farfisa um, organ. That was all it was. So th- those were like minimal pieces that we added. And it's nice to have a studio locally where we can add little pieces. But it wasn't like a lot. But we did just record in St. Louis last fall on tour. And that was pretty crazy because we had two demos we had been working on in the van. That And that tour was like, it was like 6,000 miles or something. I can't, I can't remember how many miles it was, but it was like, that was the tour where we did like 12 states or something and we were gone for like over a month and it was crazy. And in the midst of that, we knew we were going to record in St. Louis. So we had these demos we were working on in the van. And so we were like on GarageBand in the van and at various houses we were staying at and just like sleeping in the van trying to create these songs that we're going to record when we get to St. Louis after our St. Louis show. And for that session, we literally slept in the van. Our drummer, Dougie, who is our Midwest drummer, slept in the studio. <laughs> and he didn't really even know the songs. And we had, like, just finished demoing them. We went in there, and we were like, okay, how do we do this? But in Oakland, we do a lot of – everything's to tape. Everything is generally, like, recorded more or less live. There is some overdubbing, of course. Vocals are overdubbed and um, solos, and there's a couple other things. But in general, we're all playing at the same time together. Um, onto tape. Um, and then in St. Louis, we did it uh, more of a digital way where everything was kind of piecemealed out, which actually worked really well for the fact that we didn't, we weren't as familiar with our own songs. Because we went in there like, okay, we have these new demos, but we kind of, the bridge is kind of wonky because we just wrote it last night. <laughs> like, and we haven't like had a real night's sleep in like two weeks. So that was kind of fun to do that on the fly. And I believe I sent you those songs. That's for the EP um, that's coming out this summer called Jacaranda. And yeah. we were trying to create more of a um, radio-friendly sound just as an experiment, just because we thought it would be fun to do, like, a Crushers, like, you know, Radio Disney crush- Crushers. Are you – you mean because – because I, your songs are radio-friendly, but yeah. do you feel like the subject matter is the, pro- is the problem? Or do you, do, you really, do you really not see the fact that you guys – write a universally good, solid song that could be heard on the radio currently. I mean, I appreciate that. We are on, like, XM radio, like, a small 
station. Right. Well, that's just because you're not rich and don't have. I think you, know, you Neil. I think you underestimate what people want. I think they want something that's interesting, but is still something they know already. And so, no. I, yeah, sure. I understand that part, but I'm saying just aesthetically, you're not writing things that are not ready for radio. I mean, when's the last time you listened to the radio? Um, all right. Well, good point. Yeah. But being here, the problem is when you live, when you live in the middle of, of nowhere, yeah. um, there are two radio stations here, or maybe there's three really, they're right? They're playing us on, on local. We're on the crush yeah. and we're on K- right. KCBX and KCPR. Right. So, we so are- but it, overall, like, I, I don't have enough of a commute to actually listen to radio, and I wouldn't put a radio on if I was right. at work. I mean, I so guess I guess radio is kind of kind of a weird ghost thing that, like, I listened to a lot of radio when I li- when I lived in L.A. Yeah. Um, but and even there, there was pretty much just the one radio station. There were others that tried to be to beat K Rock, but yeah. they all went out of business. Right. So. I don't know what's playing on K-Rock right now, but I can tell you, even way back in the 90s, I fucking hated it then, and I still hate it now, but I listen to I listen to it anyway. That's right. kind of like yeah. what it was. Well, um, it's it's nice that we have the ear of like Rodney Bingenheimer from, you know, the old K-Rock days from his show. Right. And he's doing yeah. an XM show. We get paid really well through XM. We get we get paid from that. And it's really nice to have that um, that income and to know that like, okay, this is a step above just regular internet radio. Um, yeah. Not that I'm discounting internet radio because that's actually on the rise. And I feel like it's, that is a market that is going to do really well because people want things curated for them. That is cool. And is and there's a lot of niche genres out there now, you know, there's like the power pop people and the garage punk people and the surf punk people and the surf people and the rockabilly people. And so, um, being part of that is really cool. I guess maybe instead of saying that we are trying to create more of a radio friendly thing, I guess what we're trying to do is, um, I don't know, like, I hate to say, I, I just hate to describe it as watering something down. That's not what I mean to say, but I think I've noticed and you would probably agree that most hit songs on the radio or just, just popular songs in general are really slow because they like mimic the heartbeat. And I've noticed that even like rock songs that I, I imagine in my head to be fast, I'll listen to them on the radio and I'm like, wow, that Metallica song is actually really slow. Um, I've noticed there's certain things about hit pop songs and I love pop music in general. So I, don't, I have no shame in doing this where I'm like, wow, it's slower. Um, there's certain changes in the way the song kind of like getting into the chorus real quickly is another thing I've noticed. Like those kind of things we're like, let's make like, if we were, if we had a producer that was trying to like up our exposure, like what are the decisions that that producer would make? And let's try to do a couple songs like that for fun and really make it polished and like kind of do all like just for fun you know we, we also want to do like an exotica ep that's like all exotica 60s exotica with like animal noises so it's all just like a fun way for us to experiment and that is going to happen reed's been working on that one so um i, hate I to cannot say, like, wait radio means nothing anymore so we should just stop using that term like radio this radio that because like you said no one listens to the radio so it's not even a thing okay tell me about forever grom because it's a beautiful little interlude 
Reed, so Reed wrote that one actually one morning. Um, I came up, out, he gets up before I do, and I like woke up and he was on the couch and with um, his guitar, with an acoustic guitar and my laptop and garage band open and just he gets in these modes where he's just like in it and I know that I can't talk to him and he was like in that like you know doing the whole thing I'm like okay he's definitely doing some shit and then later I had my coffee and I went back over there and he was literally <laughs> doing drums like on his lap he's like like all this crazy shit and I'm like oh god like what is he doing like most crushers demos are not that intensive and then later he's like oh my god I have to show you something and um, it was this great little surf song uh, that he yes. had every part of it, though. He deserves every, all the credit for every part of this song, honestly, because he every single part of it, even the drums and, and the, the dual melodies, he wrote every part of it. And he had I, I should just release this um, garage band track because it's so funny because it's just it's it's like him, his own mind, you know, like it's just every part of his mind is in that song. Um, and it, it was really I just seem like a fun little interlude to do. And um, Reed's actually a great guitar player. He is a guitar player. So uh, it's fun to let him like play and, and be a guitar player. Cause he's, he's good at it. I agree. I think that song has got a lot of joy to it. And I think it's a really great song. Yeah. It's fun. Right. And like, Oh, the, yeah. all the animal noises, obviously we, I think I told you already, like we did all the animal noises, like the cacas and like the, even the like, like the waves yeah. And um, our our engineer uh, Bert, uh, Bert Bart Thurber, he was like, "Here, take like one of these. Um, it's like a like a slide guitar slide." And he was like, "He's like, if you bring it up to the um, up 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 on the neck, you can kind of make like a like a kind of like a seagull noise." Yeah, I don't know how he even knew that that was a thing, but it really does sound like a seagull. So, wow, that's amazing <laughs> that you guys didn't use anything canned. Oh no, that was all. That was all us, and and I did the the secondary guitar part. So Reed did the the uh, the first guitar part, and I did a secondary lick that I actually wrote. So we did actually collaborate a bit on that. But for Reed, he, he's really good at just like he finds these little melodies and grooves, and he just like he just na- like hammers that shit. And so um, I'm more of a rhythm person, and he's more of a like you know maniacal you know melody genius. <laughs> Let's talk about Shiva and Shangela. 
how much do you know about this song, Neil? Oh, man, I know nothing. But I, I can tell you this. I listen to this song a ton. Oh, good. I, this is one of my more favorite songs on the record. Oh, that's so good. Um, it's infectiously catchy. Oh. And um, I also feel like it maybe deals with something that's a little more complicated um, than grabbing a pack of ho-hos, right? I hope this makes you, I hope this doesn't like make you hate the song. <laughs> but I'll tell you one thing. We were listening to a lot of the cars at the time and we knew we wanted to have an intro that was just that and we knew that. We're like, let's do a ton of the cars. Um, so we knew we wanted that. And I, this is a song I wrote. I did, I wrote this entire song myself. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, um, congratulations, I guess. <laughs> for doing your job. Yeah, doing my job over here. Um, and so it was actually written about Shangela, who is the – she was a drag queen on RuPaul's Drag Race. And um, it was RuPaul Drag Race uh, All-Stars, at, I want to say season five. Reed and I both really love RuPaul's Drag Race. Um, and so – the winner of that sh- of that season was Trixie Mattel, who I love, um, but also we didn't feel like she deserved the crown. Um, we thought that Shangela uh, should have won, and Shangela is just more <laughs> of a – so Trixie Mattel, as the name would sh- say, you know, Trixie is more of a she's, – she's not perky, but she's definitely more of like the Betty, right? And so – we kind of were like, no, Shangela should have won because Shangela is a lot more about the the community, the queer community. She's just more like down to earth. She's just and she's hilarious. You have to look up Shangela. She's so funny, and we just thought she was just a more relatable drag queen. Whereas Trixie, we love her, but she's a little bit more tongue in cheek. And that's why in that song, there's a couple references that are like, it's hard to stay alive when you're flesh and blood in a Mattel Mattel world. Where we're calling out <laughs> Trixie Mattel. Also, both my parents worked for Mattel for 30 years. My mom still does. And so Barbie is like this looming figure over my life. And so maybe that's also why we thought Shangela should have won. Just putting it out there. Um, but yeah, the song is about Shangela. And actually, if you listen to the lyrics, it's about how she grew up in a um, small town in Texas and had an army mom. And how I imagined that she was bullied as a kid. I don't know if that's true, but like I imagined some things from her Wikipedia page uh, about her life. And that's where it all came from. And I thought Shangela was such a weird, cool name. Like it kind of reminded me of like a name you might hear in like a song in the 60s or something. Um, Sure. Because it's just a weird, antiquated, weird name. Just 
rise to, you know, queendom. And I think that's exciting. And I'm not afraid to be like, well, let's throw it in there. Like, this is where this is the time we live in. And I'm sure 10 years from now, people will look back and listen to that song and be like, Oh, wow, that's hilarious. We're all like, gender fluid, like, I don't know, like, whatever, you know, (laughs) like everyone's a drag queen or something. Right. Um, Because you know what RuPaul says is we're all born naked and the rest is drag. And I would agree. (laughs) I would agree. Wise words from RuPaul. It's true. All right. Well, uh, instead of arguing about the next song. Oh. um, What's the next song? Los Angeles, the cover. Uh, Let's, um, why don't you give me a top five favorite Lost uh, X songs? Top five. Okay. Give me top five. If you have to look, if you have to look them up, I can wait. I don't think uh, I have to look. Okay. Um, I would say um, The World's a Mess, It's in My Kiss is probably number one for me um, because it just exemplifies the chaotic life of punk rock and it's just a really rad song. Um, Johnny Hit and Run Pauline is up there for sure because all that the Johnny Be Good style licks, and I love Billy Zoom. He's like my guitar hero. So, and have you seen that? You've seen that uh, documentary, right? Oh yeah, yeah, I have that on uh, DVD. Um, I have watched that a billion times. It's it's cool, yeah. And and I just rewatched the Decline of Western Civilization for like the millionth time. And oh yeah, they're in that too. Billy Zoom is just so young, and and I just saw him recently in in Morro Bay, and he's you know sitting on a stool, and you know just looks he's he sounds great, but he's you know he's on the way out, and um, it's kind of sad. But um, what else would be up there? Um, I remember seeing them. I don't remember. Like, I had been watching the documentary forever, and then I went to go see them. I think it was on, uh, it was in December. Usually they play in December in L.A. And in my head, <clears throat> they were those those four fresh-faced young people. And I went to see them, and it looked like I laughed at first because I thought that somebody had put old person makeup on them. Oh, my God. And I thought, like, like, I thought um, DJ Bonebreak was wearing a fat suit. Oh, my I, God. They just, it just, they, I forgot that they were people and not these, not these icons in my head. Oh, my uh, God. Forever young. And I was like, oh, uh, they're people like, you know, they're human beings and oh they age God. and I they know. get heavy and they, and they are who they are just like I do. So yeah. just to me, it felt like, uh. I've had that experience so many times with artists where I'm like, oh, man. Um, Never meet your idols. Never, (laughs) ever meet your idols. Wait, did you give me five songs? Um, So uh, we we did a Halloween Halloween set in San Francisco like last year or something um, where we were were ex. I dressed as Billy Zoom. I I took a mullet wig and I cut the (laughs) mullet off and I had – I spray painted my jacket silver. It was a whole thing and uh, Reed was exing. And during that process, I found a newfound love for the song Nausea, uh, which I love. I always loved it. Um, but playing it and singing it, I, I think that's probably on the top five now because there's something so hypnotic about it. And the way that John Doe and Xene's vocals like intermingle is so just like punk. It's like dirty and creepy and like the ambiance is just off the charts. So got to do that. I that's that's, that's, along. that's, so that's one of my on the favorite top too. five. Um, obviously, I mean, I hate to say it, but like Los Angeles got to be up there. I mean, come on. Sure. When we play that song too, like the, the crowd freaks out and it's really fun. Um, and then, um, 
just to like shake it up with, I guess maybe like, um, um, Hungry Wolf. Yeah. That, that drum. I was hoping you get there. Yeah. That yeah. drum, that, that drum thing in the beginning is really cool. And they, I, I love, um, country and rockabilly and all that stuff. And I think X just seamlessly adds so much American like heritage into the punk, which I love. It's like, we have heritage here. That's pretty cool. I mean, it's not, you know, I think people kind of like look down on it sometimes, but it's like when you look at British punk versus American punk and you see the blues elements and the country and the rockabilly and all that stuff in the punk, it makes it so much more fun. And like British punk is fine, but like, have you ever heard a British punk band do a solo? It's like really weird. It's, it's, it's not like, it's not as groovy as like a Billy Zoom or like a Johnny Thunders, you know? I, I'm done with it. I think I just finished it. The, uh, is it Under the Big, Big Black Sun? Yeah, that's yeah. the one. Did you read the next one in that is More Fun in the New World? He put out a second book. No, maybe I've read the second book first. It doesn't have all the... So what I'm reading, I'm not sure if, which one it is, if it's Under the Big Black Sun. No, I think it's Under the Big Black Sun. No, the first one. I'm reading the first one. Yeah. Okay. It has all so, the different stories from like, you know, Alice Bag and like, the go-go's yeah. and like all these different people. Yeah. The second one kind of outlines why they kind of returned back to the roots. Hmm. And a lot of it had to do with the fact that the orange County meatheads, um, and like East coast sort of like Hardcore. thugs. Yeah. 
were getting it. I mean, they had put it to the punk to the extreme. So they were, you know, there were a lot. There was a lot of like they basically like Black Flag brought like war to every club that they went into, yeah. right? So the original 200 punks, I guess you could call it, which is kind of an interesting story. I I recommend book anybody that is listening, all all three of you. <laughs> you could definitely read Under the Big Black Sun, but then also read the second one, which is why they figured out to return to a lot of blues, country, a lot of grassroots sort of like yeah. stuff that was part of Los Angeles or part of the, the old way. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm glad that... That's kind of why they returned to that kind of thing, which can, kind of made it really interesting, the fact that like all those skinhead black, uh, black flag like type punks kind of ruined the scene, and so they moved away from that. Right. Into I mean, the things that you're talking about, which kind of expanded and showed a lot of growth. Right. I, I wouldn't say that bands like Circle Jerks or Black Flag ruined it, but they definitely made it harder for the, the, the original punks to book clubs and to continue having a real relationship with venues. Well, and when I, I say ruined, they said it. Right. I mean, I, I enjoy those records. No, no, me too. And like you and I can, we can listen to X and then we can listen to. Um, the adolescence or or whatever in a, in the same breath because we're from so we're looking at it from a vantage point in a distance and I I've, I've often said like if I was part of the early punk scene in the LA area which I love I love that whole melding like you said of like the blasters and um, yep. the stray cats and you know the weirdos and all these bands that were so bizarre I love that and I I, I would probably have been mad at those you know young dudes coming in and moshing and being crazy and stuff too. Um, I don't think I would have been on that side of things, but I'm, I am glad that like I can enjoy both now, <laughs> you know, but if I was yeah. at those shows, I probably would have been like, God damn it. This sucks. Um, I'm very open-minded of you. <laughs> well, we're lucky. Open-minded. Let's move on to the next song. Gabby is a Dom. Yeah. Uh, so Gabby, bam, bam, She's an artist. Um, she goes by uh, BBQT, Barbecutie, um, yeah. from Austin. And I, she was my roommate in Long Beach briefly and a friend of mine uh, when we were in our 20s. And she uh, worked at a sex dungeon in downtown L.A. And one day she came over, or I came to her apartment. This was after we weren't living. We were living together very briefly. I think probably when she had first moved from D.C. to the West Coast. And I had this, we had this a place called the Cunt Castle in Long Beach on 4th Street between Walnut and Cherry. And um, um, it was called the Cunt Castle because it was crawling with roaches and it was all these girls. It was me, my friend Jenny, and another, a girl, another girl who was like a, she was crazy. She was like a female boxer. She was bizarre. Um, <laughs> I think she punched me one time. When I was drunk. Anyways, it doesn't matter. Oh, oh, so you deserved it. Uh, yeah. It was like, but it was like, it was like a hellhole. It was like, it was just so gross. Like they were just, it was just fucked up. And we would go to the bars every night and like a red room and all these places in Long Beach and bring home like, you know, the whole party to our house. And it was just like this total debauchery situation. And um, so people came in and out and like stayed on our floor for, for parts of the time. And, and so anyways, Gabby ended up living over on Orange street which was not far and i go over there listen to records we actually played music together a little bit and we were writing some songs together and we had this friendship and um yeah one day she came over and she had a bag of white lingerie and she was like hey do you want this and i was like 
yeah, I mean, I'll take it. Like, I was totally into, like, lingerie at the time. I mean, I think – I'm not into it now, but I think when you're, like, in your early 20s, you're kind of like, ooh, this is what guys like. It's sexy. Like, you know, I don't know. Like, from, like, like looking at, like, Victoria's Secret catalogs. Like, I mean, who cares? But it was all this – So you're not – you, what you're saying is an extremely too much information situation is yes. that you don't wear lingerie for read. Oh, he well, he doesn't need it, you know. It's all it's frilly. I mean, who need, Reed is a utilitarian man, you know. He he likes things simple, simple but quality. I would say, but not to get too gross. Okay, so um, <laughs> so she brought me. It's this too song. late. How <laughs> much of this? How much of this song is allegory, and how much is it like actual accounting of an actual time? It's a count. It's this is okay. So she gave me this bag, and it had like white all this white laundry and stuff in it, and she's like. I'm becoming a dominatrix, so I'm not wearing this white anymore. And that's when she told me the whole thing about how she had to work her way up to becoming a dominatrix by being a submissive. And the submissives would wear all the white, and they would perform different acts on these clients. Um, and it's, it was all very above board from what I was told. It wasn't like – I mean, she's not a prostitute. Not that there's anything wrong with that. But it was more like, you know, these guys would come in and pay her to – you know, poke them in the nipple or whatever it was. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Um, yes, I know what you mean. Let's but, not talk about it. Let's not talk about it. But, but yeah, so she had gone into Dominatrix. And it was one of those things where we we'd reconnected uh, not too long ago. We'd re- reconnected, did some shows together in L.A. She actually drummed with uh, – she borrowed my drummer at the time. Anyways, um, the song isn't so much to expose Gabby as a person. It's not like – I told her I, I wrote the song about her and she was fine with it. But it was more like this, like – it just felt very poetic, like this, like, you know, going from the white to the black. And it was just a funny story. And I imagined what it was like for her to tell her mom about it and how she was finally making money that she, you know, she wasn't making as much money as a submissive. And then I'm sure she's making a lot more money. And uh, I just thought it was like a fun novelty kind of idea. Like, you know, Gabby is a dom. She became a dom. And that's what the song's about. Now Gabby is a dom. She put those big black boots on. I saw her on the streets Armed in leather to her teeth Yeah She said I don't wanna Be a sub no more I can't see her Whipping chain in her hand And the way she felt inside All the boys will
the the glockenspiel because we thought it'd be funny to add like that kind of you know sweetness with it so it's kind of like sour but kind of sweet and it, i think it is very a very crushers thing to do you know is this the full collaborative sort of effort where the music did or did you guys did you guys did you write this entire song i wrote that entire song i actually wrote that entire song in i would never written a song so quick i i sat down and wrote it in 15 minutes with all the lyrics, everything almost completely the way it is um, in the recording, including the solos, including the thoughts that I had about the Glock. However, Reed did perform the Glockenspiel in the studio, and I told him kind of how I wanted the Glock to go, that ding, 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 that little walk down. Um, but it came really quickly. It was like one of those things that just, I don't know why, but it, it came amazingly quick. Nice. Yeah. Um, moving on, don't want to be like Johnny Ramone. <laughs> this, this, this reminds me of almost every band I've been in. <laughs> Why? You want, you want, um, just, just, uh, maybe I've, I've just always chosen the, the wrong people to dance with. You know, I've always chosen poorly. You want to, you want to talk, you want to talk about this? I mean, conceptually? is this about anybody specifically? It's about Johnny Ramone. <laughs> okay. But I was thinking, all right, well, obviously it's about Johnny Ramone. Yeah. But is it also about somebody, uh, you've come in contact with? I mean, yeah. Or is it just about him? Well, okay. So I was reading a lot of Ramone's biographies recently we played a show with our friends, the um, Out of Sorts, like a year or two ago. And one of the guys knew I was into the Ramones and he brought me like four Ramones books. And so I, he's like, this is for you in the van when you're on tour and stuff. So, like, so I brought them with me and I literally read one after the other. And it was like Commando. Commando was the Johnny Ramone one that affected me the most. But there was a bunch of DD ones and a couple other books in there. And the the thing that really struck me about Johnny was – the reason the Ramones survived and did well was because Johnny was a tyrant and he basically like was a tyrant. He had a stick up his ass and that's the only way that they could have survived. Um, but he was also kind of an asshole. He, you know, voted for, he was like a Republican who super yeah. Ronald Reagan. He, he collected all this Nazi memorabilia. Um, he, he would say really disparaging things to, to Joey and he stole Joey's girlfriend, you know, what, like he was just kind of an asshole. Um, and he was just like one of those guys that was just like, you know, he felt like he had to rule with an iron fist or else things would fall apart. And I guess that was kind of true. Um, so in that sense, the, the, the song really does reference specific things about um, about Johnny and his personality. Second, secondary, though, I wanted to do something. So the punk, the pop, the, the new pop punk scene had been kind of sniffing around us a little bit. And I thought. You know, all these bands want to be just like Johnny. And there's a lot of, like, controversy about, you got to downstrum only just like Johnny and all this stuff. So stupid. And I knew it was there somewhere. My, I, knew this doesn't, I knew this wasn't just about no, fucking Johnny. No, no. And, 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 and they idolize him. And they love him. It's like, yeah, I get it. He, like, he had a lot of good qualities. But to play guitar like Johnny Ramone plays is about as intuitive as playing guitar with your feet. You're basically... Okay... You're basically doing something. So he couldn't play guitar. He was really bad at it. He was very insecure and had a ton of insecurity in his life. That's why he attacked the guitar 
because he didn't know what he was fucking doing and everyone tries to copy him and it's like no he was doing that because he was holding on for dear life because he always admits that he wasn't that good of a guitar player and he played he decided he was gonna play a surf guitar um because he thought it looked cool but it and then now everyone's buying these you know mose rights or moss rights whatever and trying to like play like him and it's just hilarious to me that there's all these people that are you know, emulating this thing that cannot be emulated and probably should not be emulated. Um, and so that's kind of, I was kind of trying to give a little sneer to, like, I like the pop punk community because they've been really welcoming to us. And in general, they're good natured, good people, and they help us on the road and they're wonderful. But at the same time, it's like, really, like, is this your hero? Like Johnny Ramone is your hero? Like, you know, that's kind of dumb. So that was kind of like my, and I know it's kind of mean, but that, that was kind of where that came from. And I no, wanted to do a song. I, I that think it's a good. I think it's important. Uh, yeah, it's, impor- it's important to uh, identify um, trends like that when you're a musician. Yeah, it's important. I, I know, as a visual artist, I can easily get swept up in a trend or in in an uptick in something that happened previously. Yeah, and feel like I'm missing out. So right. <laughs> having, having FOMO about something like that. Yeah. But staying the course is probably your best bet. And oftentimes as a creative person, I wish that I had kind of just stayed the course with the things and not have jumped around or tried to maybe mimic what was popular. Right. I don't really care about that anymore. I just kind of am doing, um, I'm just kind of, doing what I'm doing. And I think you guys are kind of just doing what yeah. you're doing. You're, you're not worrying too much about that. No, but I think I, the whole record has a lot of, a lot of growth in it. And I think in some ways you guys took some chances on some things. We did. Yeah. And, this and I, I think that's the only, but that's the only way, that's the only way you can grow. I think I, I artists that I know that have been doing the same thing forever feel like they're kind of boxed. Yeah. Yeah. And they're not, they're not, um, they're, they're not experiencing any growth. So I'm not, and, but you know, it, it all depends on if, if they're happy with that, I guess that's fine, you know, or they're jumping from trend to trend, whatever. Yeah. And um, I also think the song is cautionary in the sense that like we can all become kind of like too serious about our art. Like I, you know, I get like that. I am so type A about that stuff. And so I, I almost poke fun at myself. Like in the song, it's like, nobody wants to sit in the van with you. It's like, I've been in both any, I've worked with five drummers last year, five different drummers. And every single one of them would tell you there was a point in the scenario of playing shows with me where like nobody wants to sit next to me because I'm being a brat or I'm being uh, just like Johnny Ramone.
in a way it's like as much as I'm poking fun at like Johnny, I'm like, okay, we can all be like that. And we need a little bit of that to get where we need to go and be pushy. And like, but then there was other things about Johnny where like, he wasn't really friends with other bands. He wasn't friends with his contemporaries. You know, he famously feuded with like Blondie and like, he kind of didn't have a sense of community that I feel like most punk bands, you know, should have basically. So it's kind of this cautionary thing too, where it's like we can all be very stodgy about our art or whatever medium we're, we're doing, you know, painting included. And to just kind of maybe relax a little bit, because as we know, Johnny, his whole life wanted to, he wanted to get a million dollars. The minute he became a millionaire, he died of um, anal cancer. So, or prostate cancer. Wait, hey. whatever. <laughs> Let's just leave it right there. Let's talk. <laughs> <laughs> It's, like, not funny, but it's funny. Well, when you call it anal cancer, it's hard not to get a chuckle out of it. Well, I think about his butt a lot, because when I think of Johnny, I think of his little tight little, his tight little tush and those little jeans, and he's just, he's just playing really hard, and he's just downstroming really hard, and, like, that's what killed him. In my mind, like, that's what killed him. A tight butt. (laughs) Tell me about attention shoppers. I... What I like about this one is that it has the spirit of, to me, it has this, the, it's dripping with like a snark that I can only like really, if I had to compare it, it would be like the Dead Kennedys. Ah, oh, that's cool. That's cool. The message, at least, you know, like the way that they, the way that yeah. Jell Biafra wrote. Yeah. Um, it's very tongue in cheek, but also very you know, it was caustic and like mean yeah. and like snarky and, but it was, it wasn't like he was wrong. Yeah. Which was you right. love cause you're Gen X. So it's like, you're all about that, that shit. Right. Well, I guess then who, then so, who are you? So what is this song about? So, so tell Reed, me that. It's funny. Cause I was against putting this on the album until I realized it's a, it's a, a post-apocalyptic soundscape. It's not a song. It's a soundscape. And Reed hates when I say that because he's like, it's a song. We wrote it. It's a fucking song. And I'm like, no, dude, it's a soundscape because there's a bunch of weird aliens and screaming. And like, it's, it's, it's a soundscape. The Metroverse Mall will be closing soon. Please bring all merchandise to the nearest self-checkout shop. Attention shoppers. Good afternoon. Thank you for shopping. We value you. We value you. Find security. 
And um, anyways, he we wrote that partly in the studio in Oakland. Um, we had this idea of a we we wanted to do something about the malls closing because we've been all over the country, and as you know, malls are closing and have closed and are closed. And yeah. there was one particular one in Colorado near his hometown we had v- visited that was like so sad. Like you walk in and it's just like one kiosk. Like the DMV had been moved in there for some reason. So it was like one like food thing that would looked really gross. And there was like the DMV and like all the other like shops, they had shuttered, but they still had some signage. It was like really creepy. And so we had written down like, okay, we got to do a mall, a closing mall song. Um, but Reed created that riff, that, that really driving riff. And um, I came up with the idea of being like the perky, you know, attention shoppers, you know, uh, you know, person on the megaphone or whatever in the mall that the one that's like, please bring your purchases up to the counter because we're closing soon. And so together it kind of came together in the studio. We finished writing it in the studio and, and I was not happy about that because I, you know, my Johnny Ramone came out and I was like, well, this is really half baked and I don't want this on the album because it's, you know, we're not sure about it. And Reed was like, no, let loosen up. It's fun. It's weird. It's mean. Like, just have fun with it. And I think he was right. And I think you're right that if you can let loose and just kind of like be a little wacky, that's, that's great. I mean, it's a great thing to add to an album. So now I'm really happy that we added it. Cause it just, it's a fun way to end it too. Like, you know, yeah, it's a great outro, it's like a great, a great surprise to a, to a song, to, to the album. Yeah. I think I have to give Reed yeah. credit. You know, Reed, Reed was the one who was like, no, let's do an instrumental surf interlude. Let's do, he is really visionary about that stuff and he sees it holistically in a way that I can't get out of my own way. And so I I owe a lot to him in the sense that I trust him artistically and we might argue, but he, I know in the back of my mind, like these decisions are right. I mean, Los Angeles, I'm still not sure if that was the right decision, but you know, the rest of the things. (laughs) Just on a personal level, I think I don't want to get into arguing with you about this. Oh, you won't. You won't argue with me about it. I, I agree. It's, I will. It's, it's I will wussy. argue to the death with you about it's this. It's a wussy move to do the song without the original lyrics. It's a wussy move. First of all, yes, there, there's that. Secondly, yeah. you already had a cover, and you hauled ass on it. Yeah. And you did a remake. Yeah. Of your own song. I, Again. This album is great, um, <laughs> and I, I don't want to, you know, I mean, this is your podcast, but let me get fired from your podcast by saying I skipped that song. Yeah, I and well, I get it. End with, to go to the rest of the album because I think that it's a substantial album and you've done a lot of growth yeah. and I think it's a great record. But yeah. that that song drives me fucking crazy. Right. And that's all I want to say about it. And we knew that. We're like, some people are going to fucking hate this and some people are going to fucking love it. And we've heard people that really love it and we're like, really? Cool. Um, so Reed's always like... They must have not heard the original version. <laughs> um... <laughs> It, you know, it's it's almost like when you put a painting collection together. I mean, you probably have, you know, five or six amazing things that you're like 100% on. Then you have a couple tertiary things that you're like, yeah, I'm going to throw this into spiced up. And then you might have another thing that you're like, well, we'll see how this goes. You know, with albums, it's the same thing. And, and Reed has also taught me to be less precious. It's like you, you use what you got. And, um, you know, this next record, we actually have like nine demos we're working on right now because of the coronavirus. We're like stuck at home, obviously. And I think one thing I would like to do better on the next album or just kind of learn to do more is allowing some things to stay on the cutting room floor. Maybe thinking about things in terms of like, you know, Reed is very much like 
everything, just everything, whatever. And I'm more like, no. So maybe finding a, a, mid, a, middle, a middle there where like, you know, maybe it takes longer for the record to come out, but that we had more time to like, like, like you said, patience, like more patience to like have a cohesive so, album. So this is a back of the house question in, in some ways, like people would probably be bored of this question that don't understand music, but what about you guys hiring an executive producer or a producer Someone who will argue with you I about your artistic, your, their, your artistic resolve and your, you know, it's not just someone who's moving the knobs, yeah. but it's someone, it's someone who's like, like, uh, I don't know, like a Rick Rubin. Fuck yeah. A Rick Rubin. <laughs> you know Rubin. what I mean? Like a guy who's like, I know music and I know what you guys are doing and what you're doing right now is not good and right. you guys need to take it in a different direction or think about what you're doing. Yes. I want that. And Bart, Bart, you have the luxury of doing that now. Oh, I would love that. I think, I think bands need producers so badly. And Bart, um, who we worked with on the last two albums has grown into a little bit more of that, where he's trusting us more to say negative things, to say like, this could be changed. This could be better, uh, to challenge our, our, like you said, you need someone to challenge you, not necessarily to say you suck or you're great or like pat you on the head, but like, Hey, I'm going to challenge your decision to do this. And is it serving the song and the album? I want that. And, and we're looking for that, honestly. And if we, if we had someone like that, that was willing to do that, I feel like we would be so grateful. And so we're, we, we have our, our eyes open and, you know, we, I'm, I'm always looking for, um, uh, what's the word? Like, uh, mentors. I'm always, I'm always looking for mentors. And I'm always like kind of reaching out to people that I think are, are above me and, and have more like of an idea of like the holistic approach. So I have faith actually that we will get there and we will find more of a team in that sense. Like I think it'll happen Um, just like it's kind of happened for you too. I mean, you've had someone come into your life who has been um, able to look at your art from like a bird's eye view and like think about the markets and think about all these other things that you're not necessarily like as, you know, immersed in. So, (laughs) you know, I think these are good things, right? Even if they don't always produce exactly the results we want, it, at least it challenges us, right? I mean, I yes. think that's I think you're you're right on. Like that is so necessary, especially for just like, you know, a band that has so many personalities and, and thoughts and, and it could go so many different ways depending on, you know, whether it's I you know, Reed wins or I win the argument. Like it could go in so many different ways, <laughs> like you know. I think having a producer would probably mean that you guys would have to be hunkered down in, in one particular spot for uh, a period of time. I think that's what, I mean, records, you know, records take a while to record. Things take, things take time. The process takes, takes time if, with, a produ- with, with a producer in tow. Yeah. It's one, of those, it's one of those things that I guess it has to be part, you have to be, it has to be part of your artistic process. Uh, in a lot of ways, yeah. Which yeah. I don't know why you hate that word so much because it's a it's a. I feel like we're on the actor's studio when you say that. It's a methodical system. Like you're, it's not like you you guys are just in the studio and and scrambling eggs. Yeah. You know, you're like making you're you're you've put some time and consideration into what you do, and unfortunately, you have to call that process. I'm uh, sorry. Uh. So can I ask you the question I have for you? Yeah, since we're at the end here. Yeah, so I have a question for you that I was thinking about. I was walking the dogs one day. I didn't have a podcast in, which was unusual for me. I was just, like, looking at the world, and I went, I have a really good question for Neil. 
Okay, so this kind of pertains to both of us. So I feel like, in in a sense, like the the music that I the 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 goal of the music that I'm trying to create is essentially a joyful and uh, happy. Even if my lyrics are not always happy, I mean, you could probably agree that the tone is always a sense of joyousness and a sense of celebration, and I want it to be something that makes you dance and move and smile. Okay, I think that's obvious. Would you agree with that? Yes. Now, I would say I'm not the most happy-go-lucky person. I'm really not. I'm moody, and I have a lot of... I've suffered with anxiety and depression. I've been medicated for it. Um, I've been in therapy, like most human beings, you know. But I think more than most, I'm I'm not a happy-go-lucky person. Now, your paintings, especially your pool paintings and just your use of color, is this very calm, chill, um, almost serene... I don't even know, peaceful kind of thing. I feel like the way you create shapes and the, the way you approach visual is very, you create this sense of harmony and peace in, in the, in the viewer. That's just my perspective. I don't know if that's what you're going for, but like this sense of like everything is copacetic in a way, but not, I don't know, like not in a, not in a fake way, but like you, you create harmony and okay. I don't think you're a harmonious person at all. No, I'm not. I am, I'm a very conflicted, complicated person, and yes. I know that about myself. Yes. And I was something I would not admit if I was in my 20s or even in my 30s. Right. I'm a, I'm a very um, raw, emotional, sort of very flawed human being. You have some... Um, you who have tries some, to yeah. do his best, yeah. but oftentimes uh, it's a 50-50 shot. And I would say... So my question is, so I was thinking about that. I'm like, that is so interesting. I wonder if that is, uh, there is something to that in the sense that what we are compelled to create and the thing that pushes us to create the way we do and with the goals that we have in mind, is it a sense to, is it like to complete something in yourself or a way to soothe yourself or... What is it, you know? And I, I do you think a lot of artists are like this, where there's this dichotomy between what they produce or they, like, try to, you know, go for and what's inside? I think good artists live in a dichotomy. I think they live, they live, in, that, they live in that space that, where there's tension, and I think that they need that tension to, uh, to attempt to find paradise or right. happiness i one time somebody told me I, and you know what i don't even know i must have heard it somewhere along the line i heard that comedians people who make people laugh for a living and bring joy are the most miserable people yeah and I they agree. are sad dark miserable people and that statement spoke to me it identified in a lot of ways like a light switch came on and I was able to see my, the whole, my whole room of emotions in a lot of ways Yeah. where I feel a lot of the world's sadness or I feel, I feel how I feel because of the positions that I either put myself in or I just happen to have bad luck or whatever it happened to be. But I oftentimes try to boil that stuff down and kind of create a paradise yeah, that's um, the word. I, maybe the I part try of to create. Yeah. That's what I'm trying to create with my work. I yeah. think I'm just trying to create a space 
that that in which none of none of those things really exist, and I'm trying to bring joy to the world. Yeah, that, that's what I want. That's what I want to do. I want I want happiness, and I want other people to be happy, and I want other people to look at my work and just not have to be bogged down with like what it means or how heavy it might be or whatever. I just kind of, sometimes a pool is just a pool and that's exactly what it's supposed to be. It's just supposed to be something, um, hopefully beautiful that you look at. And I think that I accomplish that, then I have done my job as an artist. Yes. Can you see the parallels between what we both do and what we produce? Yeah. I think that's why we're able to collaborate. I agree. And I guess maybe that's, I think it was after the last summer crush and I was thinking about it like, wow, it really turned out a million times better than I even thought. Like just the, the kids running around and the balloons and the fun. And I also thought about like, you know, my stress about it and, and how it was not necessarily even needed because, um, no matter what we do together, we both have this like common thing that we're trying to do. And it's when a, when a, when a desire to create art comes from your own inner like lack in a way, it's like, it can only turn out one way. Like we both want more joy in our lives. Yeah. And like, we both want to like be okay. We're both like very um, emotional people. So of course, whatever we do, you know, like it's going to come out awesome. Right. I don't know Because I guess not that we're coming from a sense of lack, yeah. but we're coming from a sense of like, we, we need this to work. I mean, I need this music to be joyful for me. Like, I need this more than I need than other people need it. I, I do it because I need it. You know, I need it to, to live yeah, a life. So this isn't I, a hobby for me, right? And you're the same way. And so I, I just thought, yeah, like, it's not yeah. a hobby or a, or a yeah, it's it's a compulsion. Yeah, it's a need. And so, of course, no matter what, like we're going to continue to create this great stuff because we need it and we put it out in the world. And so, I think I can relax more into that, like knowing that like no matter what we we put out or what I put out like it's it's how it's supposed to be and it's it's going to come out in the the only way that it can and no matter how it's received it served its purpose you know it made it made it made us okay for a day and I know that sounds very like recovery but for me that's how I see art it's like it's so much more than you know whatever not more than ever that's exactly all we need we just need to be okay for the day and then work on yeah yeah. From there. Yeah. What a wonderful um, interview. You've thought of so many great questions. It's really fun to have someone else ask me questions for a while. I, I love yeah. this. This is great, Neil. Well, I don't, I don't want to answer any questions about me. Well, that's why I only asked you one. That's good. I only need one. <laughs> yeah. All right. So that's it, right? Yeah. Maybe one day, you know, I can convince you to let me interview you because I have, I have more pool questions and more of just general painting questions for you. Okay. Maybe. We'll see. I doubt it. Okay. Um, well, thanks for listening in to this episode of sparkle butt and fart fade. (laughs) What is it? Baby in the dude. Sparkle and destroy. (laughs) You're worse than Ben Weasley. You're worse with Ben Weasel than his glitter gals. He's like, this. what is this, yeah. the glitter gals? Glitter, glitter face. <laughs> glitter face pod. Um, Welcome to the glitter face pod. Um, 
wasn't that just so wholesome? Two Dorkasauruses just laughing it up and talking about songs. Um, if you do want to support Neil Breton, definitely go check out his website. If you Google Neil Breton art, uh, you can find him and he's got a ton of art on Instagram at Neil Breton. That's N-E-A-L-B-R-E-T-O-N. Um, and so go and share your love with him and go buy a painting from him or send him some baked goods. I'm sure he would appreciate that. Um, if you do want to contact the podcast, you can email me at sparkleanddestroypod at gmail.com or follow me at Haley and the Crushers on Instagram. Um, I have got all the time in the world, like I've said before. So if you guys have suggestions for guests or people that you know want to come on and chat with me, do send them my way and we'll see what we can do. I just realized now we didn't ask Neil how he sparkles and destroys. (laughs) So we'll have to um, get a clip of that uh, for next time and I'll have to share it on the next podcast because you can only imagine what his answer will be. All right, guys. Thanks so much and sparkle hard.